This is Absolute Radio Frank, celebrating Frank Skinner's 60th birthday. This is Adrian Childs on Absolute Radio Frank, interviewing Frank, which is a great privilege. Did you select me for this, Frank, or was I forced upon you? Um, you were suggested to me, and after some wrangling, <laughs> I, uh, I gave in. I was worried that people won't understand two accents like this, but, you know, it, we... I think uh, we're available in the West Midlands, so that'll be, that'll be good. What did you listen to when you were a kid? What's your first memory of local radio? It must be West Brom related, surely. It was um, BRMB in, um, in Birmingham, obviously. Two things. Um, Les Ross's breakfast show, which included things like a, uh, a sort of regular sitcom, um, which was a Western which used to be on every day. With I, I don't know who did the voices. There was never any credits. Uh, and then uh, the sports stuff was a bloke called Tony Butler, who oh, you may remember. Very well. Who's uh, fabulous. His catchphrase was, OK, OK, <laughs> which um, no one's ever never nabbed for themselves, to my knowledge. So when you went to the Albion, you stayed to the end. My granddad used to drag me off early so many times. We were mm. driving away, and I heard Tony Butler say, uh, goal at the Hawthorns, Tony Trethui. Through, he said, bad news turn, West Brom, uh, West Brom conceded, uh, Liverpool scored in the last minute here. Brutal yes. stuff. Well, I never saw any of those goals, because those were in the days when we stood on the terraces, and I saw about four West Brom goals a season, if I was lucky. And they, they did, incredibly, they did score more than that, in case you're wandering at home. So we're celebrating your uh, big birthday. Your first birthday memory is very clear to you, isn't it? It's unusual. Yeah, it was. Uh, I remember sitting on the bed and saying to my mum, um, "I'm four today," and it's nice to have a first memory that you can put an actual date on. And uh, there might have been earlier in memories, but obviously that one is quite significant. So. Um, I now move towards a point, of course, where I won't be able to, forget, I'll be able to remember them again. <laughs> but um, it's funny how things level out in the end, isn't it? There's a sort of ramp at each end of life. As the youngest child, traditionally, you're, you're either spoilt or you're, or you're sort of mercilessly put upon and bullied. Which was it in, uh, which was it in your case? I was spoilt, uh, definitely. There, there were seven years between me and, and my next brother. So... Um, I was. I felt a bit like an only child who lived with some other people, but there was um, two brothers and a sister I had. And when I was uh, a young, very young kid, the three brothers were in. Um, we were in the same rooms. So had two of us in a double bed and one in the single bed. And then the oldest one, Terry, started drinking, and and coming in, you know, drunk and and uh, being sick and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so I I got. I got into that sort of uh, lifestyle quite early. I don't think you can get secondary drinking, <laughs> but I, 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 I sort of did. Who did you, who was it you shared a bread with? Was it Keith or Terry? Me, yeah, me, me and my brother Keith shared a bread. And then, and then we got bonks, which was a big moment. So um, I think he, I had the top bonk, yeah, and he, uh, and he was beneath me. Keith got a, a walk-on part in one of your sitcoms, didn't he? Keith, um, my first sitcom was called uh, Blue Heaven, and he angled in it. If that's, if that, I don't know if that's a verb. They're called anglers. Do they angle? 
Anyway, he angled against a sort of a West Midlands sunset. And I remember they said for timing, they were going to have to cut it out. And I said, if you cut this out, you'll ruin my life. So they they had to keep it in. I don't think I've ever worked with a relative since because you have to make those emotional decisions. Didn't somebody ask him how he knew you? And he said, I used to sleep with him. He did. He did, yes. Well, he's not the only person who (laughs) answered that. (laughs) You get to pick not every song for yourself, but they do give you a certain amount of leeway. Yes, so I get to pick the next one. The, the, the next one's pretty easy because it, it's it might be my favourite song of all time. It, it's certainly in the top three or four, and um, I've probably heard it ten thousand times, and it's never even dipped for a second. Right. It's called "The Roadrunner" by Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers. Absolute Radio, Frank. Just going back to school days, Frank. Ever since I've known you, you had this thirst for learning. Mm. Did that manifest itself as, at a young age, or is it it's something you sort of worked your way into as you got on? No, I don't think it did manifest itself at a young age. Oh, I wish it had manifested itself earlier on, because at school, I'm one of the few people that you meet who lo- I love school, but the reason I loved it is because I just larked around for the whole thing. And I can't decide whether to blame myself for being... Uh, foolish, or whether I feel that the education system let me down and should have spotted that it had a rare gem in its hands. <laughs> but there must have been a teacher who, don't know, just made you sit up in your seat and gave you some kind of hunger for learning somewhere before the age of 18 or 16. Sure. Um, I, I don't think I had that one teacher who... Um, I'll tell you what I did have. I um, I ended up, I got expelled from school and then I worked in a factory and then I decided I wanted to do more with my life and I did uh, teacher training badly and I failed the first year. But um, there were two women on that course uh, who were taught on that course um, and um, they were called Marilyn and Marjorie and they said at the end of it, look, you, you know, you're a terrible teacher. You don't want to be doing that. But um, your Eng- the actual English bits of this course, you've got the best marks on the whole course. You should be on an English degree. So um, I said, I can't get another first-year grant. This was in the days when people got everything paid for. And they said, try. So I phoned up my local authority, and I, um, I basically lied about I said, well, I'm on a four-year course, so I, want, I do want another first-year grant, but this is only a three-year course, so you won't actually be losing any money. And I made that up, and no one checked anything, so I got the grant. But brilliantly, Marjorie, on the last tour I did in um, 2015, she came to one of the gigs in Birmingham. And I don't think you were there, but there were several West Brom players. There was a crowded um, dressing room of people who'd come to see me, relatives, mates. And I was able to sort of bring Marjorie into that room and say, I just wanted to say, you don't know who this woman is, but she honestly changed my life. Because she fought for me to get on that English course. And when I was on that English course, that's when my brain started expanding. I think that's when I realised that learning was like at the centre of my universe. Was there one moment where that became apparent? Was there one sort of book or one novel? I often think novels are wasted on teenagers. It, you know, they're, they're first reading when you're a bit older. You well, know. everything's wasted on teenagers, with the possible exception of um, acne. But uh, I... I I think Wordsworth, um, William Wordsworth, the poet, when I first read that, I I 
that completely blew my mind. There's a few posts, Tennyson and Gerard Manley Hopkins. They, I think it was the poetry that got me. I'd never read, really. My, my, the entire um, extent of my poetry experience was Muhammad Ali doing, you know, he used to do poems and interviews and stuff. And it'd be stuff like, um, you know, and if he's still alive, he'll fall in five and stuff. It wasn't, it wasn't elaborate work. But um, I still, incredibly, I still either read or listen to poetry every day of my life. And that's, you know, what, 40 years on. Without the learning, without the engaging your brain and getting it really going with literature, could the comedy have happened? Or did you need that stimulus? That was a difference. Well, the comedy's been an ever-present, really, since I was a small child. So I, I always... Um, made people laugh at school, at work, in the pub, and that that was my main passion in life. And I've always been a comedian. Uh, people would say, "Oh, you became a comedian, you know, when you were 30. No, I didn't. I started doing it on stage when I was thirty, but I took it as seriously. My need to get laughs was as strong if I was sitting on a bus talking to someone that uh, as it is, you know, standing on stage at, at, at a big theatre. So that, I would say I was always a comedian. And then there was a slight little moment when I, I went up to a professional one, but it was still basically the same process. Absolute Radio Frank. You say you'd always wanted to be funny. No, I never said that. I said I always was funny. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> dare you rewrite that sentence? So you can remember people finding you funny when you were even six. Did you ever remember? Yeah. Did you ever sort of... Did you ever remember... Failing to make people laugh when you were six. Um, I, I think I was. My standards were um, were probably lower then, so I was happy with a smirk. Now anything less than a, than a guffaw is. A, I mean, I have my volume now. What I would call my volume, and I couldn't. If we had graphic equalizers, I couldn't reproduce it. But when I do a gig, I know instinctively what my volume is. And if I don't get my volume, even if they've been laughing, then I feel I failed. And what's the sweetest sound? Well, there's different kinds of laughter. There's laughter which melts into applause. I mean, that, that is nirvana, isn't it? Well, I don't know. I've never really bought into the applause thing because, you know, politicians get applause. But I, I, I don't see it as uh, in the hierarchy of audience sounds. I don't see above laughter because I think applause is much easier to switch on and off than laughter is. Say if somebody does a song, it could be a slightly rubbish song, that, you know, a comedy song now, a rubbish one doesn't get any laughs, and people will applaud at the end. But that just means that that's a convention, whereas laughter is always undermines people's conventions. Sometimes people don't want to laugh, and they just have to laugh, and that's the real victory. You know, it's interesting... When people say, oh, what, what, you know, comedian, what they do is they make people laugh for a living. It's the use of the word make I find very interesting. <laughs> it sounds like people don't really want to, but you're, you know, it's, like, it's almost like tickling. Mm. You're, 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 you're forcing them into it. Whenever I spend an extended amount of time with you, and the first time I did so was when we went on that road trip across America. We went from Las Vegas to Houston. Yes. Us two and uh, uh, another friend, friend of mine. And I remember you said something. You made a joke about... We were somewhere on the Mexican border. Mm. This is like name-dropping. This is like place-dropping. But we were somewhere on the Mexican border. And there was a little shop, nondescript shop, and a huge aerial behind it with kind of a, a round kind of satellite dish type thing. Mm. And you said... I mean, that, 
tambourine shop's doing a good job of its signage. And I thought at that moment, I mean, at that moment, I began to get slightly worried about you because it felt to me like you're almost tortured by comedy. Some, I mean, you almost sort of can't switch it off. I don't want to switch it off, though. I mean, I'm... But it's I'm, relentless. Okay. No, I love listening to it. I just wonder if you, you ever get tired of just of, of, of thinking up funny things. Well, um, I mean, I've got to say, I'm laughing at that. Because <laughs> I forgot... You enjoy your own jokes, which is nice to say. Yeah, well, I'd forgot that joke completely. But, um, of course, now we wouldn't be able to see that joke. It'd be behind a massive wall. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't feel... I think... Less so now, actually. When Before I did it professionally, I think I probably couldn't let an opportunity go without trying to be funny. You know, I would have props in my pocket for in the pub and stuff like that. I used to do a thing with um, cling film and pretending I'd sneeze and I hadn't got a handkerchief. I won't go into too many details. <laughs> so I used to do that in the pub. I used to take a knot and bolt onto fairground rides and drop it to pretend <laughs> that something had fallen <laughs> off the big wheel. So I... Yeah, I've, I, it was always there, but I love it. I love it so much. I'll, there'll be jokes I do at home, which I just do over... If ever Kath, as it, Kath my, my partner, Kathy, you know very yeah. well, is a very fussy eater. And if ever we go out for a meal or she's eating at home, and I say, how's that? And she says it's a bit oily. I always say, well, it's only caught to one. <laughs> and even when it isn't caught to one, I've been saying that now for 10 years. And I, even when I said it then, I, it, it makes me happy. There was just one other one when we got to uh, Galveston. I know whether you remember. Oh and, yeah, and uh, we—it's like a seaside resort, but it half been blown away. Do you remember? Yes, it was a, a hurricane and had, something uh, or other had, uh, yeah. had, had, had its wicked way with it. When we we got talking about holidays, you used to go and you talked about being in uh, going to Budley on holiday. And I said, to, he said, I was just a kid. We had like a caravan by the you know mm. by the river, and he said. Um, he said Terry went out fishing, but he was a rubbish fisherman. Keith, Keith, Keith went fishing. Sorry, yeah. Keith went fishing. He said Terry just drank, and then, and then just in about tenth of a second, you said, "Well, I said your one brother fished like a drunk, and the other one drunk like a fish." Yeah, you'd never thought of that before, but it was—it's an act of almost insanity to be able to come up with that. Um, well, Dennis Leary, the American comic, I remember he when he moved to LA, everyone he knew was having therapy. And he um, phoned me up and said, promise me you'll never have therapy of any kind, he said, because I've realised that comedians' brains are wired in a certain way. And let if you let someone in there, they're going to put in more orthodox wiring. And um, you might have a lot less pain in your life, but you'll have a lot less laughs. <laughs> what do you think of that as a swap? I said, no, no, I'll stick with the laughs. <laughs> What's your next track? Well, one of my great um, loves is uh, Velvet Underground. There's a certain sort of pre-punk New York mushy sound which I love, and they epitomise it. I particularly like this track, which is called White Light, White Heat. Absolute Radio, Frank. We're talking about music. There is a kind of, uh, you describe it as a fuzzy, muddy sound. That, mm. I mean, the... The best example of that is the fall, where it's just it's all mud. It seems to me on occasions and fuzz. Where did that come from? Because Elvis isn't like that, and Elvis was your first. Look. Well, Elvis was like that in when he started out. When Elvis was at Sun Records, it's got that mushiness. I think the the first music that really really moved me was fifties rock and roll, and I think I I look for the fifties rock and roll in every bit of music I hear to this day and what it's got it sounds like some people have got together on a street corner 
and it's got all the rough edges on. And one of the reasons I really struggled was because when I was in, in my teens and got you know, mega into music, all my mates were listening to Pink Floyd and stuff like that. And I found I, I couldn't cope with the polished, sort of pure nature of it. I, I like things that sound a bit like somebody building a shed. What was the first time you remembered that happening? Like you'd, as little Richard used to say, could feel his toe shooting up into his boot when he, when he heard. So when's the first time your toe shot up into your boot? Well, my brother gave me uh, an Elvis album. He gave me a bunch of albums. Um, they were all in the wrong sleeve. My, my brother was not, he, he didn't care for vinyl. And that, you know, that sort of inner sleeve, he thought that was like just packaging, so he used to throw that away. Uh, so for years, I thought it was Elvis's um, golden records I had, but it wasn't. It was a different album that was in that sleeve. And there was a track on that, um, which is actually a Little Richard cover called Rip It Up. And it, when it went into that, I remember thinking, oh, yeah, this is, this is the music I'm going to be liking. It was, one of, I suppose, one of my first hairs going up on the back of the neck. But I still get, you know, I can still think of those moments. First track on, the, on Elvis Costello's first album, first track on um, the Ramones' first album, first time I heard the Smiths. Those moments when you hear someone and think, I'm already in love. And certainly, certainly it happened with the four. And where were you, just going back to that Rip It Up? Where, where were you, sitting in your house? Was there a record yeah, player? Been, where was there was it? a dance-set record player, and um, it would have been preceded by a lot of... because <laughs> it was in terrible state. And then this voice came out. And I know it's, you know, I think people now think Elvis was a bit naff because they think about the jumpsuits and all that. But he, to me, is, is still what any sort of alternative music, music that your mum and dad doesn't like, music that gets you by, you know, in, in the entrails, he still epitomises that for me. So it's visceral. Absolutely. Absolute Radio Frank. It's been fascinating, Frank, going back um, and reading your first book, which I read first time round and loved it. It was before I knew you, before we'd even met. Mm. Uh, and it just it just strikes me what a different person you are in there to what you are now. Going back and rereading it now, now I know you well. Well, I mean, it's it's seventeen years ago that I wrote that book, and um, I once heard a Radio Four program where they had a bloke on who um, he studied sea anemones. That was his <laughs> job. And the interviewer said, um, a very good question. How do you know when they're dead? <laughs> and he said, well, uh, growth. If you, if you can't measure any growth over a period of time, we officially class them as, as you know, they're no longer alive. And uh, so if I was the same bloke I was 17 years ago, I would officially class myself as dead. I said to uh, Emily Dean, who I spoke to, uh, I spoke to this morning, I said, the thing is, I just, I didn't know Frank then. And she said, well, lucky you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, I, I don't know, know if you'd I, have liked me when I was a, a drunkard and stuff. I mean, well, no, I'm not talking did. about the I'm not talking about the drunk years. We, I'm talking about, I mean, the time when you were writing that book where you were super successful. Um, you just don't seem, I mean, look, absolutely compelling. But I just think you might be a nicer person now. I think I'm probably. I, I think I was always um, a middle aged man in waiting. I've, I've always believed, even as a child. I'm not calling being 60 middle-aged. That suggests that I'll live to 120, which, I mean, I'm all for modern medicine, but I don't think that's going to happen. 
But um, I sort of have grown into myself a bit, I think, and I feel I feel happier now. At that time, when I was in the tabloids all the time and stuff like that, it's, I, I think I was a bit more edgy, a bit more tense. And, um, I, I mean, I st- I'm still capable of being unpleasant, but um, I think then it was, it was I always felt um, like it was show day. I felt that sort of anxiety you get in your shoulders when you know you're going to be on telly in a minute. Do you think you were conforming to a stereotype which either you'd invented for yourself or had been put upon you? You know, the lad, you know, it's it's all, it was a bit sort of, I don't know, there's a bit, you, you're almost like a comedy Liam Gallagher at times. There's a bit of a strut about your orbit with a lot of self-deprecation. Well, I think I, that's what I was like. I mean, one thing about my work, it's always been very autobiographical. Even on telly, I always talk about myself and, and stuff. And so um, that's who I was then. And I think, you know, I, I, I was still fresh from Birmingham. And then, of course, I spent some time amongst the chattering classes in the capital. And now I've, you know, I've mellowed somewhat. Uh, the, next, uh, the next song, do you call them songs or tracks? When I say tracks, my daughters, my daughters like, laugh at me in derision. I won't so, laugh at you in derision, whatever you call it. <laughs> All right. Uh, the next one is, uh, is, is the Ramones. The next disc. The next disc, yeah. yeah. The next tune. Uh, why the Ramones? Well, um, you know when people go to things dressed as the people on stage. I don't know if you've ever done that, but you know if, if people used to go, they'd go and see Culture Club dressed as by George and stuff. Or the like Jam, that. the classic yeah. wannabe thing. The last time I did that was the Ramones gig at the Birmingham Odeon, and I went in the ripped jeans, you know, white white pumps, and the biker jacket and all that. And that's how much I loved them. I still, the first time I heard the Ramones, my world slightly changed forever. And again, it's that thing, it's just raw and it's from the gut. And it sort of breaks down all that falseness and phoniness that you have to put up with in in the world. Which track are you going for? It's called California Sun, which I, I love playing that in January. But the riff on it is one I've always loved. Absolute Radio. Frank. Music obviously sustains you and obsesses you and everything. Is, is there a... Are there kinds of music we just can't bear? If you got to a desert island and there were eight discs there and you looked at them and thought, I'm just not playing them. I'd rather to, I'd just rather die here baking in the sun well, to I, no soundtrack than that. I find it... Um, I find it difficult to say... I, the, most genres I've had a real try with you know when in the days when there were more record shops about you know cd shops i used to stand and look and think i bet there are artists in here who if i heard them would change my life and i'll probably never hear them but um funnily enough i think that the one track that always sends a shiver through me is imagine by john lennon that i know he's regarded as a great classic but i despise it and then there's people who I used to like, like Police and Eurythmics, I used to really admire. And now I just find them, and Madness, something to do with my drinking years, I think, which is what they all coincided with. Um, I can't listen. I, well, I do listen because I, I, I play them for um, professional reasons. <laughs> but um, all of those I, c- I can no longer cope with. It's a worry, isn't it? Because there might be someone I love now. Not that I loved them, but people I like now that I... Um, that I will despise in years to come. It's something to look forward to. Emily said something to me interesting once about her reading. She said, I'm, I'm very disciplined about reading. I, I force myself to read. I read stuff out of my comfort zone. And I, 
can you, is it possible to be like that with music? I've sort of taken that on with music. I thought, oh, I'm going to force one, I'm going to listen to that all the way through twice. Well, I've, um, I'm deep into um, Beethoven's string quartets at the moment, and it doesn't come easy to me, but I keep finding bits that I really, really like. And so there's enough to keep me... It's like the odd little lamppost in a very, very dark street. I've just got a sense it'll be worth carrying on with it. Um, and I, th- I think it's always good to do that. I think any sort of reading or music that feels a bit like an intellectual workout is, um, is good for the soul. Absolute Radio Frank. This is Adrian Charles on Absolute Radio Frank interviewing the said Frank. In, in the many things you've achieved in your career, just having a radio station given over to yourself, that's a big thing. That. That's it, a beautiful it's thing. It's great. It's like uh, staging a coup in a Central American republic. You know, the, the first thing they always seem to get is the radio station. No, it's, it's great. It wasn't my idea. I was, um, I was very, very thrilled um, to hear about it. When you're choosing your records for the records, I've used an archaic yeah, term. Yeah, that's fine. I'm happy with that. When, you, when, you're, when you're choosing them, at first that must be a great feeling because you've never done much music radio, had you, before? It must, it must be a lovely feeling. It's like you're on Desert Island Discs every week. Yeah, well, I try not to celebrate it too much because I don't know if anyone else here has the same contract. <laughs> <laughs> so I get, I get two, two choices an hour. And one thing, one of the reasons I came to um, Absolute was that I thought that, generally speaking, their playlist is is great. You know, I, there are some stations I I just couldn't cope with the playlist. It was it would drag me down too much. Um, but to be able to um, embroider an already beautiful tapestry um, with my own stuff is uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a novelty and a joy that has not worn off over the seven or eight years. We were just uh, talking just off air a minute ago about the, the Oasis brothers, if I can call them that. And you said... Jeff uh, and Steve Oasis. Yes, <laughs> yes those two. <laughs> uh, but you were saying about Liam and I, I said I knew them, you know, in the 90s when we were sort of all quite mega, you know. You, mm. you, when you look back on your mega years, I mean, I don't, think you're, I don't think you're any less mega now than you were then, but what... That's kind of you, but why do you think I've taken over absolute 90s? Because <laughs> I think that's his crowd. I actually uh, I went to um, Dublin earlier in the week, and I went into uh, one of those gift shops um, to buy. I actually bought a, a, a sort of penny whistle for my son, and the woman said, um, "I just wanted to say, I, I, you know, I love you." The, the other people in the in the shop are too young to recognise you. I thought, oh, <laughs> no. I think it was, um, I, you know, I. I I'm loving everything that happens now, and I'm probably working more than ever. And, um, you know, I'm still on telly a lot, still doing live, love doing the radio, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I do think the 90s was sort of, that was when I was in, you know, the 3am girls were talking to me and stuff like that. So it's that, I mean, I always say that was there was a, a secret conference of celebrities in the 90s when we got together and said, look, it's too much, the workload is too much for talented people. Let's bring in a whole load of people whose job is just celebrity and let them do some of the dirty work. Um, And that's why they had reality shows and all that. And those people have done a sterling job as our celebrity support staff. And uh, I used to do all that. I used to... There was a magazine voted me party animal of the year in about 90... 
six or something like that. And you that. hadn't had a drink for ten years. No, exactly. But I just went to stuff because, the, the you know, the novelty of being invited to um, showbiz parties, it took about ten years to wear off. Your next pick is Temple Tudor. I was always baffled by them as a kid. The name was just strange. I found them a worry on top of the pops. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what they were about. Can you help me? I think um, if they toured, um, a worry, Adrian Charles, would be a very good (laughs) quote for the poster. Because that's one of the things about them is they they were basically um, medieval knight punks. Which is a great combo. They wore quite, quite a lot of heraldic uh, clothing and stuff. I mean, it, I was—I think I established in the first hour. I love that sort of New York um, sound, but I—I I love bands who sound English. English bands who sound English. I have a problem when people say to me, "Oh, Amy Winehouse was so brilliant," and it's really opened her heart. And I thought, if I did a stand-up tour in which I spoke in an American accent, I'd be booed 100%. off stage. Um, but but Temple Tudor to me sound not only like an English band but uh, an English band from the fifteenth century, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'd say Wunderbar or Wonderbar if you like is uh, is probably their um, piece de resistance. Absolute Radio Frank. The likes of Temple Tudor. Where are they now? I love sort of Wikipediaing some of these kind of acts. And it's fascinating what becomes of them. Yeah, you have to be careful with Wikipedia once. I remember once I was on a show with Faye Tozer from Steps, and I said, so you're quite a successful uh, trampolining champion. She said, I'm sick of people saying that. I've never been on a trampoline in my life. Um, and that was one of her Wikipedia. Uh, Temple Tudor, I went out with a woman uh, who um, who had a, a child... Um, by the, um, I think it was the guitarist or the bass player in Temple Tudor. That's how much I like them. I just wanted, any link would do me. But now they were, I, I think, yeah, I have never had a problem with the one wonder um, phenomenon for obvious reasons, maybe. Um, but I just think there's a lot of people who have no hits who you hear taking the mickey out of one-hit wonders. And I always think, look in the mirror, mate. No hit wonder. What do you think would have been different about your career when you were starting out and obviously trying to promote yourself and make uh, make a go of comedy if you'd been in the social media era? When now you can't do it without being either brilliant or at least very enthusiastic about Twitter and Facebook. Which, would you have embraced that, do you think? Well, I think I was very lucky in that when I came along, um, that wasn't around. Because I think... Um, for a start-up, there's a phenomenal amount of joke theft. I mean, Emily Dean, who I do um, the radio show with on Saturday mornings, is always telling me about someone delivering a joke on Twitter that I've done that morning, and I'm delivering it as their own. So I can't, I can't abide. The comedy police of the 90s would have stepped in straight away on that one. I also think that when I started, I was a sort of pioneer. There was about 35 comics I knew who were making a living on our sort of, you know, what they call the alternative circuit. And now there's about 450 in that same thing. Um, And it's like when you see old footballers, you know, you see some of the greats and they don't look that great. I think it's good to be around in the formative years is, is definitely an advantage. So I know you'd always been trying to make people laugh, but you were 30 before you went on stage at a paid gig. Do you think it's a bit like, you know, we criticise politicians for never having had a proper job before and don't know, you know, don't know anything about life. Do you think that was to your 
advantage that you'd, I mean, you'd, you'd worked in a factory, you'd, you know, you'd, the teacher training, etc. You know, yeah. degree. You'd, you'd done other things. Yeah, I think that um, what you realise is that you've been researching being a stand-up comedian for thirty years, but you never knew it. And I think that's true of most creators. You know, if you're going to be a novelist or a playwright, it's all grist to the mill. You know, it's it's all all that works. And there are people who, you know, Jack Kerouac, the American writer, basically, apart from one road book wrote about his childhood, you know, ad infinitum, out reworking it, reworking it, reworking it. So it's great for that. You realise that your life has basically been sausage meat and now you've suddenly got a sausage-making machine and you can start banging them out. Absolute Radio Frank. Rereading your your first book, I have to tell you, it's, it doesn't speak well of me, but I felt real, real proper envy at one bit where you spoke of your birth certificates where the words Western Bromwich appear on it sort of three times, don't yes. they? You know, it's just, it's not on mine. Mine's just Birmingham. Yeah, mine says, uh, born in the town of West Bromwich, in the borough of West Bromwich, in the district of West Bromwich, I think. There was no, there was no escape. Uh, we both support the same football team, but I forgot about the story about your your dad, like West Brom, in a way, bought him to Birmingham in the first place. He met your mom. Well, this was—I mean, he—he he played for a, a, a club called Spennymoor United in County Durham, and they got—they um, got drawn against West Brom in the third round of the cup. They were a non-league team, and um, he came down. Certainly, he came down with the squad. I'm never sure if he actually played, um, but while he was down here, they—they they lost seven-one. By the way. Uh, those were the days. And uh, while he was there, he went to a, a pub that night and two blokes said, um, do you want to come to a party? We're having a party. And um, the way he told it was he, he thought they were both low lifes. So when they asked him his name, he said, Len. His name was actually John. But he didn't want to give them his real name because <laughs> they were looked so dubious. And then he went, but they turned out to be my mum's brothers. Um, and so he ended up meeting my mum and marrying her as a result of having been at, at, at the Albion. That's what brought him down to the West Midlands. So never went back? Um, I think he went back briefly and then came back down again. But he still happily told my mother the story about um, the fact that her brother was, brothers were such low lives that he wouldn't give them their real name. <laughs> it was insensitive him, uh, sensitive of him, I thought. But uh, So, yeah, I mean, I, it could be said that without, without West Bromwich Albion, I would never have been born. And what kind of class were they from? Your I mean, you call yourself your proper working class well, background. Well, my dad was very, very working class. I mean, his his dad had um, they both was a miner, and my dad had, had worked in the mines in in uh, in County Durham, and they were classic. I mean, you know, pigeons and whippets, and you know, c- cigarettes and flat caps. They were absolutely the sort of people you can only really picture in black and white. Now, seems so long ago. And my mum also, you know, would tell stories about, you know, my granny literally, you know, boiling up the bones to um, to make soup and that was it, you know, for that day and stuff. So they, I mean, they knew poverty like I never knew. We were just basically living in a council house, outdoor toilet, you know, um, working class folk. Is it true that your mum said when you first met your dad's parents that were both smoking pipes? That can't be true. <laughs> no, that is true. I have actually seen a picture of my granny smoking a, a, a nice little clay pipe. Yeah, it was a different world. I mean, it, you know, it was a long time ago, obviously. 
as we've uh, as we're establishing with this fabulous <laughs> anniversary channel. Uh, and your mum saw him coming in a dream, didn't she? She uh, actually won. Um, I think it was uh, she won five shillings in a newspaper saying that she'd seen this man being brought down from heaven by angels and then three years uh, later uh, she met him and it was the same bloke. And that incredibly um, was my dad, who was like a real wild, drunk, (laughs) troublemaker of a guy who'd been born down um, by angels, incredibly. Perhaps Bennymore is heaven. Well, I just think he was thrown out of everywhere else. He was probably thrown out of there as well. But we get to the fall. A band, in your honour, I've really tried to get my head round, and I, 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 I just can't. Really? I'm, oh, yeah. I've, yeah. I can uh, get through it. You know. oh, well, that, that's, that's no way, is it, to, uh, to, 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 to approach music. I heard this particular track. I was in my car one night. I used to do a lot of late-night driving when I was, you know, in the early days of comedy. And I was listening to uh, John Peel, I think it was, and he played uh, Spoiled Victorian Child. And weirdly, I, I thought, I love that. Th- these are one of those bands. Like, the hair went on the back of my neck, and I thought, I'm just going to listen to them. And then I never got round to it for about five years. And finally, I got a Greatest Hits album, and I thought, you know what, I was right. These are the best band in the world. And even the, the lead singer wouldn't like that because he thinks they should be called a group that a band has to have trombones in it. <laughs> but anyway, yes, this is The Four with uh, that very track, Spot Victorian Child. Absolute Radio, Frank. What do you think your parents wanted for you? Um, I think that um, my mum didn't have those sort of uh, big ideas. I think she'd just grown up in a world where ambition was um, not appropriate. Uh, my dad advised me very early on to go into showbiz if I possibly could. Get on the bandwagon is what he used to say. He said, once you're on the bandwagon, he said, look at some of them people on the... T-. He said, look at that Aspel. Not, got nothing. <laughs> no talent. He said, but he's on the bandwagon. Did he have a thick Geordie accent, your dad? He, he had... Um, I couldn't really spot it, but all my mates used to um, take the mickey out of the fact that he's, you know, there's someone from when the boat comes in living in my house. But uh, so he was very impractical. I think he had aspirations, my dad, even though he just, you know, worked in factories and things. But it's almost exotic, is it? You don't, you, there weren't many Geordies in Birmingham at that time. There was plenty of Scots about who'd, who'd come south looking for work. I don't, I, don't, I don't recall meeting a Geordie anywhere till I went to college or something. No, well, he, um, like I say, he got here by fairly exceptional circumstances, a mixture of um, football and love, which... Um, has powered both of us through the years as well. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, that's a very good point, actually. He, he, I, some of his relatives followed him down, I remember. I had an Uncle Jimmy came over, who looked very much like my son, actually, had same, same colour hair and eyes. And they, uh, Uncle Jimmy came around and they had a row and they went outside for a fight, which was quite a difficult moment, two <laughs> brothers. And Jimmy took his coat off and threw it down and a car went over it. <laughs> And he said, that's, well, that's, that's gone over me coat. And my dad said, I think yourself lucky you weren't wearing it. And they, uh, they just collapsed in laughter and, and, and then just went down the pub. That was the end of that argument. And when you look at Buzz, what do you want for him? Buzz, I should say, is my four-and-a-half-year-old, in case you don't know. What do I want for him? I want him to be a, 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 a top-order stand-up comedian. 
I really would like him to be a stand-up comedian. I'll do what I can to push him in that direction. He's got that. He's got that gene somehow, hasn't he? He's already funnier than a lot of people making a living out of it. I mean, I, I, to me, he, he, he endlessly says things that completely crack me up. I know people say that about kids, but um, they they don't have his timing. <laughs> <laughs> And is there anything you'd have him, you wouldn't want him to do with his life? I mean, when he win and when he, because whatever you don't want him to do, he will do. I mean, kids, kids just do. You don't want him to drink, he'll drink loads. Yeah, you know, well, you... I mean, there are dark things. Obviously, there's lots of dangers and temptations for, uh, you know, kids nowadays. But I think um, I would just like to be around long enough to get to the point where he doesn't want me to be around anymore, which is, as, as you know, that happens with kids. Mm. And then I can either um, die quietly or I can finally um, return to my study and read Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. <laughs> Absolute Radio Frank. Reading a lot about your dad, again, in your first book, you see, he was quite a, a funny guy, but quite an angry drunk. Um, yeah. He, he had that he shot could, in his lock. He could be volatile. I mean, he was fabulously entertaining. And he's the man who got me into like singing and telling jokes and watching football and boxing and stuff like that. So he's an amazing influence on me. But he was a lot harder than me. He was built, you know, like a barrel. Um, so I couldn't have adopted that side of his personality without getting regularly knocked out. So what were you like with a load of drink inside you? Again, you'd stopped drinking 20 years before I met you. Well, I, you know, I like to think I was great. And then after I packed up, people who I thought were, you know, extremely heavy drinkers told me that if they were approaching the bar and they could see me in there when they arrived and they knew I was on one, as they'd say, like, you know, a three or four day bender, they used to just turn around and go out because they couldn't cope with it. And I was shocked by that because I thought I was endlessly entertaining as a, as a drunkard. But I suppose every drunkard does. So why do you suppose that was? Did you become acid-tongued or just sort of garrulous? Or I suppose I, you know, I did... Um, they get very repetitive, don't they, drunks? And I, I'd, I'd just be troublesome. You know, I used to get thrown out of pubs for... I remember I sang Last Train to San Bernardino, I think it was called, and uh, accompanied by the large ashtray banged on the bar and that shattered into a thousand pieces and then I got thrown out and then I had a fight with the bloke. I say I had a fight, I basically got knocked over by somebody outside. And life could be like that. Me and my dad went drinking once. I was meeting a woman at midday and he said, come and have a pint with me first. And I woke up on the floor of our house at four o'clock. You know, we'd both been thrown out the pub. So I don't know how it happened, but me and my dad, you know, I, I picked up his motto and when he spoke about drink, he used to say none or enough. And um, I, I, I found none to be too difficult to cope with. It always strikes me when I think, you know, I've, I've, I've never drunk like that, but I sort of drink a lot. Just it's what a waste of time it is sometimes. And all the time you've saved by not drinking. Mm. It takes a lot of time to build up to it, to think about it, to plan it, to do it, and well, then people, to recover from it. People never mention this, but one of the big blows when you stop drinking, one of the things that's really hard to cope with, it's like 24-hour days have suddenly become 34-hour days. And we all think that's great, but suddenly there's a big chunk of extra time. And that, I think, ultimately is why I started doing comedy, because I just felt like it's, you know, some strange lunar eclipse and the days had got longer, and I had to fill them with something. 
but also you used it still learning all the time, improving things. At the time, I might choose, oh, I'll just go for a couple of pints. You know, you'll go to the opera or you'll go to a gallery or you'll see some obscure film or, or something. Well, that, that is true. I mean, I, I went to the opera this week with my friend um, Baroness Bakewell <laughs> to see uh, De Rosen Cavalier, which is um, four and a half hours long. Uh, not happy with that. On the way there, I listened to an audio book about um, the history of Rome. So I, I find it exciting. I find, um, I love, you know, I love uh, football and, and that kind of, you know, that stuff that's easier, if you like. But um, I, I like the feeling of, um, you know, those, they're called Van de Graaff generators when you get like a spark going. I can feel that between my ears. On a moments like that, and that's that's the best feeling ever. Craft work. So there's a German theme going on here. Even Tempol Tudor, quintessentially English, had a German title to this. I've one. always loved um, Germany. I must say, I feel part of me has some sort of allegiance. I love the whole. I think it's still okay to call it Kraut Rock. That's what it's officially called. You know, I like that stuff. And when I first heard craft work, I I I couldn't believed it was so different you know this there was something like a six minute single in the charts um which was uh, autobahn Mm. with people uh, sounding very german and um and sounding like they were from the 22nd century this is um probably the most well-known track called the model um which um has got one of my best lines ever where it says uh, she's a model and she's looking good i'd like to take her home it's understood (laughs) uh and it's it's fabulously exotic. It's it's a world I, I I would like to spend some time in the craft work world. Absolute Radio, Frank. Does being sixty worry you? Being fifty, as I'm exactly ten years behind you, almost is worrying me to death. Well, I I love free stuff in all its manifestations, and it's one of my big thrills. It's never worn off. Someone sent me a spork to the uh, radio show the other week and, uh, you know, a cross between a yeah, spoon yeah, and foot. Yeah. I was thrilled. Um, but my, um, my boss pass came this week, my 60-plus boss pass. And even though I knew free travel was the, uh, the headline flashing in my mind, uh, mortality was the, um, the slightly smaller writing just under it. So um, I'm, it's all right. Being 30 was tougher because when I was 30, I was uh, unemployed and um, I had a drink problem. And my best mate's girlfriend, I remember, said to me, so what's it like being 30 and on the scrap heap? So um, I don't feel I'm on the scrap heap now, so there is that. But um, I but to die and go we know not where, to lie in cold obstruction and to rot. So what drives you now? Now none of those things are going to happen to you. Um what drives me is I still really care. I still, if I, if someone said to me, I mean, they, this happens, people say, oh, could you come and do a 10-minute thing, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's it's just a, blah. I still want to do it absolutely to the best of my abilities. And if I don't, if I feel I've let myself down, I will feel that in my shoulders for about three days. And I really, I I, I love this job in all its manifestations and I think I have a moral obligation to do it as well as I can do it. So, if, you know, I was born eight miles down the road from you, a proper white middle-class boy in a very middle-class neighbourhood in Hagley. 
What would you have been different if you'd have been had that that I was you know quite a well relatively wealthy upbringing I had you know when you you know you were proper kind of working class. Well, my dad used to say that if he won the pools, we'd we'd get a small holding in Hagley. <laughs> so you were living on Mount Olympus, as far as we were concerned. I think I probably would have been different. Um, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, it's it's weird. How, you know things that. Feel like tough or not that pleasant in your life when you look back on them can be beneficial things. And I think, I think if you've been, this is a cruel way of putting it, but if you've been a loser, there's a part of you that remains a loser. And if you've been poor, there's part of you that's always poor, no matter how much money you get. And I can still feel that in my joints. And I think it's good that I still feel that. Celebrating Frank Skinner's 60th birthday. Absolute Radio Frank.